All right. So instead of opening up with my own prayer, um, I don't know if you guys have, most of you are probably familiar with the Valley of Vision. And one of the um, prayers from that is very applicable for tonight. So when I'm praying, you're like, that does not sound like Abby. It's not me. It's so I'm going to be praying that to open us for tonight. So if you guys can bow your heads, we'll pray. Heavenly Father, save us entirely from sin. We know we are righteous through the righteousness of Christ, but we long for conformity to him until heaven. We are your children and should bear your image. Enable us to recognize our death unto sin. When it tempts us, may we be deaf to its voice. Deliver us from the dominion of sin. Grant us to us walk as Christ walked, to live in newness of his life, the life of love, the life of faith, the life of holiness. We abhor our body of death, its envy, meanness, pride. When your blessings come, we begin to idolize them, and we set our affections on some loved love object, children, friends, wealth, honor, and it cleanses our, cleans our, cleans our spiritual adultery and grants us forgiveness. Close our heart to all but you. Let the victory be apparent to our consciousness and displayed in our lives. Filled us with daily grace daily that we may be devoted and obedient to you alone. Amen. Okay, so if you have your booklets, the four points are in there. It's going to be very progressive. Um, so the first is very basic, just identifying what are idols. Um, so that's our first point, what are idols. So what comes to mind when you think of an idol? Maybe the golden calf in Exodus 32, or maybe a specific structure, or figurine, that other religions would call a god. But how often do we equate the idols of this world, like the golden calf in Exodus, as the exact same sin as the idols of our heart, like pride or perfectionism? Idols in our culture are more common to be heart obsessions than a figurine. John Piper has an excellent definition of idolatry. Idolatry starts in the heart, craving, wanting, enjoying, being satisfied by anything you treasure more than God. I'll read that one more time. Idolatry starts in the heart, craving, wanting, enjoying, being satisfied by anything that you treasure more than God. In the book Gospel Treason, which I mentioned earlier, which I'll be mentioning throughout the rest of tonight, the author Brad Bigney has a definition of an idol. An idol is anything or anyone that captures our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. He also puts the definition into a question format to probe our conscience. You might say, I'm not setting up idols in my heart. Wouldn't I know if I were doing that? Let me put it this way. Do you ever have thoughts about wanting something that is outside of God's principles, precepts, and commands? Now, John Piper and Bad Big Knee's definition of idolatry and idols fits the biblical viewpoint well. Merriam-Webster's definition of idols describes the examples we often see in the Old Testament. A form or appearance visible, but it's without sustenance. The definition of idolatry, which we often see in the New Testament, a moderate or an excessive attachment or devotion to something. Yet as we are about to see in both the Old and the New Testament, God is focused on our heart because of our outward actions are reflections of what is in our heart. And if his children love and joy or are satisfied with anything other than him, he makes sure to warn us, discipline us, or both because he loves us, and he's a jealous God. Exodus 24 through 5 says, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water underneath. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh, am a jealous God. So that should clarify what idols and idolatry are. 
Our second point is where do we see idols and idolatry in Scripture? We'll be camped out on this point for a majority of our time. So if you have your Bibles, if you can turn with me to Exodus 32. You guys are very um, familiar with this passage if you've been in the church for a while. It's the golden calf. And I just want you to realize idolatry throughout these scriptures is probably one of the Bible's most persuasive themes. Because in a sin-cursed world, we constantly are fighting idols. Yet no created thing or idol is meant to satisfy our human soul. So we'll be reading the whole chapter of Exodus 32. We won't be reading the whole chapters of the rest of the scriptures I'll be mentioning. So if you can just be patient with me. We'll start in verse 1. So Exodus 32, verse 1. Then the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain. So the people assembled about Aaron and said to him, Arise, make us gods who will go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And Aaron said to them, Tear off the gold rings which are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. Then all the people tore off the gold rings which are in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he took from this from their hands and fashioned it with a graving tool and made it into a molten calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And Aaron looked and built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to Yahweh. So the next day they arose early and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. Then Yahweh spoke to Moses, Go, go down at once, for your people, whom you have brought up from the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have quickly turned aside from the way which I commanded them. They have made for themselves a molten calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said... These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And Yahweh said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, they are a stiff-necked people. Now then, let me alone, that my anger may burn against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make you a great nation. Then Moses entreated the favor of Yahweh his God and said, O Yahweh, why does your anger burn against your people, whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt with great power and with a strong hand? Why should the Egyptians speak, saying, With evil intent he brought them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent concerning doing harm to your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by yourself, and you said to them, I will multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens, and all this land of which I have spoken I will give to your seed, and they shall inherit it forever." So Yahweh relented concerning the harm which he said he would do to his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and the two tablets of the testimony were in his hands, tablets which were written on both sides. They were written on one side and the other. Now the tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. Then Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, and he said to Moses, There is a sound of war in the camp. But he said, It is not the sound of the cry of triumph, nor is it the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing I hear. Now it happened as soon as Moses came near the camp that he saw the calf and the dancing. And Moses' anger burned, and he threw the tablets from his hands and shattered them at the foot of the mountain. Then he took the calf which they had made and burned it with fire to the ground and ground it with powder and scattered it over the surface of the water and made the sons of Israel drink it. 
Then Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Do not let the anger of my Lord burn. You know the people yourself that they are prone to evil. Indeed, they said to me, Make gods for us who will go before us. For this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, Whoever has any gold, let them tear it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this golden calf. Now Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control to be a derision among their enemies. So Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for Yahweh, come to me, and all the sons of Levi gathered together to him. And he said to them, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, Every man among you put his sword on his thigh and go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp and kill every man his brother and every man his friend and every man his neighbor. So the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. Then Moses said, Be ordained today to Yahweh, for every man has been against his son and against his brother in order that he may bestow a blessing on you today. We'll stop there. So the first observation I want you to make is I want you to turn back and look at verse 1. So this is a question for you. What caused the people to ask Aaron to make a God from them? If you see in verse one, it's the people saw that Moses had delayed to come down from the mountain. As for this Moses, they say, the man who has brought us up from the land of Egypt. You all, so before they build the golden calf, you already see what's wrong with their hearts. John MacArthur makes a comment in regards to verse one in his commentary. He says, such was the influence of the polytheistic, so many gods, world in which they lived, that the Israelites in a time of panic or impatience succumbed to a pagan worldview. And here's the key. The pagan world had robbed them of seeing God as having led them out of Egypt, and instead they scornfully attributed the exodus to Moses. Idolatry was committed when the Israelites put trust in Moses rather than the living true God. Next, I want you to observe verses 5 and 6. Idolatry doesn't just stop in the heart. It then moves outward into our actions, as it did with the Israelites. Not only did they make the golden calf, but it followed with the people sat down to drink and rose up to play, that it says in verse 6. MacArthur says again, The Hebrew word allows for the inclusion of drunken and immoral activities. It had robbed the people of all ethical alertness and moral discernment. This passage details why idols and idolatry are so dangerous. It starts in our heart, and then it moves out into our outward actions. And last, I want you to notice God's anger in verses 7 through 10. The Israelites had gone again from attributing Moses from bringing them up from the land of Egypt to now a golden calf. Brad Bigney, the man who wrote Gospel Treason, comments, So why do we turn from God to the golden calf of idolatry? When we read Exodus, we think, What's wrong with these people? God had just led them out of the Red Sea, wiped out the Egyptians, sent frogs and all kinds of other plagues, as you know, against Pharaoh. God was on the move and on display, yet just a few weeks later at the foot of Mount Sinai, they made a golden calf. What's with these people? We don't see it in our own lives, though. We don't remember the last good and glorious thing God has done for us by the next time a trial hits, as we've been talking about this weekend. All we see is in that moment, that trial, and we start making golden calves for ourselves instead of trusting God. So we're going to be looking at a few more scriptures. The next one is Psalm 115.
The psalmist here, context-wise, is talking about the difference between our true and living God compared to the idols of this world that people worship. We'll be reading um, verses 1 through 15. We'll start in verse 1. Not to us, O Yahweh, not to us, but to your name give glory, because of your loving kindness, because of your truth. Why should the nation say, Where now is their God? But our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of man's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. They have eyes, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. They have noses, but they do not smell. As for their hands, they do not feel. As for their feet, they do not walk. They do not make a sound with their throat. Those who make them will become like them, everyone who trusts in them. O Israel, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and their shield. O house of Aaron, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and their shield. You who fear Yahweh, trust in Yahweh. He is their help and their shield. Yahweh remembered us. He will bless. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear Yahweh. The small together with the great. May Yahweh give you increase, you and your children. May you be blessed of Yahweh who made heaven and earth. So our first observation of this passage, we're going to be looking first at verse 4. So notice the list of contrasts of idols of this world that we see with our living true God. In verse, verses 5 through 7, we read of all the things that an idol, the idols cannot do. Then we read of all the things our God can do. Our God speaks, sees, hears, smells, feels, and walks. In verses 9 through 11, we read that not only can God do everything an idol cannot do, but he is our help and our shield. So notice also in verse 8, there's a heed given. Trusting in something is the same as worshiping something. And I think that's our key for tonight. So while we don't have outward idols necessarily in our living room, um, trusting in something is the same as worshiping something. So we're either trusting in God or trusting in something physical. We'll cover this later in Romans 1 because it hits a lot on that. So lastly, observe the heed given to Israel to trust in the Lord alone, not in the idols of this world, for they cannot speak, they cannot see, they cannot hear, they cannot smell, they cannot feel, they cannot walk, or more, most importantly, false idols cannot protect you and they cannot love you. You can turn to Jeremiah 2.13. I'm just reading the one verse, so it's up to you, but I'll read it to you guys. For my people have done two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, to hew for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. So notice here God says that the people of Israel have committed two evils. Not only did they, one, forsake Yahweh, but they made for themselves broken cisterns, idols that do not satisfy. Forsaking God is listed as a sin as well as replacing God with something else. Brad Bigney uses a great illustration to describe this. So imagine that you're in the middle of the ocean and you've been on a lifeboat. Your tongue is clinging to the roof of your mouth. Your throat is parched like it is this weekend, I know. (laughs) And your lips are cracked and bleeding. Again, like this weekend. (laughs) You're dying for a drink of water, but you're surrounded by it. The problem is, is that if you give into that temptation and you down the mouthfuls of water you will feel an immediate sense of relief and satisfaction that will quickly be followed by a ravaging thirst that is far worse than you had before. 
Everything outside of God in Christ is salt water. It only leaves you thirstier than you were before. Our next passage that I would encourage you to turn to, if you have your Bible with you, is Ezekiel 14. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. The context of this passage is um, some of the elders of Israel are coming before Ezekiel, and God sees right through their heart. Again, it's Ezekiel 14, and we'll start in verse 1. Then some of the elders of Israel came to me and sat down before me, and the word of Yahweh came to me, saying, Son of men, these men have set up idols in their hearts and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. Should I be inquired of them at all? Therefore, they, therefore speak to them and tell them, Thus says the Lord Yahweh, Any man of the house of Israel who sets up his idols in his heart puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, and then comes to the prophet, I, Yahweh, will be brought to give him an answer in light of it, in light of the multitude of his idols." In order to seize the house of Israel by their heart, those who are estranged from me through all their idols. Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says Lord Yahweh, Turn back and turn away from your idols, and turn your face is away from all your abominations. For anyone of the house of Israel, or of the sojourners who sojourn in Israel, who separates himself from me, sets up idols in his heart, puts right before his face the stumbling block of his iniquity, and then comes to the prophet to inquire of me for himself. I, Yahweh, will be brought to answer him in my own person. I will set my face against that man and make him a sign and a proverb. I will cut him off from among my people so that you will know that I am Yahweh. All right, so again, I want you to flip back to the beginning of the chapter, and we're going to look at verse 1. These aren't just the common Israelites that we saw in Exodus 32. These are the elders of Israel. So look at verse 1. It says, some of the elders of Israel. The context of this passage, according to MacArthur's commentary, is, so these leaders came insincerely seeking God's counsel. So in contrast to the outward idol that we see in Exodus 32, these elders had inwardly set up an idol in their heart. Next, notice what's repeated by God three times in verses 3 4 and verse 7. In verse 3, these men have set up idols in their heart and have put right before their faces the stumbling block of their iniquity. And that's repeated again in verses 4 and 7. So I know you girls will enjoy this. This is a box illustration. <laughs> so this is actually from the book, so I can't take credit for it. Um, so Brad Bakney uses this illustration to describe what we are like when we are following idols of our heart. It reminds him of a deer during mating season. He lives in Kentucky, so he sees this phenomenon played out every year. Have you ever noticed how stupid male deer are then? And have you ever wondered why they just dart right out in front of your car? Where are they going in such a hurry? What are they after? Well, when a male deer is looking for a mate, they sniff out the scent of a female deer and in heat, and when they find it, they take off running, throwing caution into the wind. <laughs> Here's an animal that spends the other 345 days of the year carefully avoiding all human contact. But during that short season, he plunges down wide open hills, storms across four-lane highways with absolutely no regards for cars or people because he has only one thing on his mind, chasing down that female deer. <laughs> 
Now get this, that's a picture of us when we are chasing down our idols. We are throwing caution into the wind. We're ignoring God's word. We're ignoring loved ones who ask, what are you doing? What are you thinking? Why would you throw it all away for this? We don't see the barbed wire, the traffic, the open manholes, because we are focused on one thing, chasing down that idol, feeding that idol, serving that idol, and protecting that idol. So why are some of the elders of Israel, right? This is not just the common people. It's the elders of Israel. Why are they estranged from God? It says, in light of the multitude of his idols, through all their idols. So not only are they estranged from God, but if the elders do not repent of the idols from their hearts, verse 8 says, God will set his face against that man and make him a sign in a proverb, and God will cut him off from among his people. So again, we see idolatry is a very serious sin. The next passage we'll be looking at is in the New Testament. It's Mark 10. 17 through 31. Again, this should be another passage that's familiar with you ladies. It's the rich young ruler. We'll be reading verses 17 through 31 of Mark chapter 10. I'll start in verse 17. And as he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and began asking him, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth up. And looking at him, Jesus loved him and said to him, One thing you lacked. Go and sell all, your, all you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. But at these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to him, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And they were even more astonished, saying to him, Then who can be saved? Looking at them, Jesus said, With people it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and the gospel's sake, except one who will receive 100 times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. So again, this is a text familiar to most of us. I want you to take notice of this man, the rich young ruler's posture towards Christ. The man ran up to meet Christ. He knelt before Christ, demonstrating his humility, and he's calling Christ good while asking what he needs to do to get saved, to have eternal life. On the outside, everything the rich young ruler is doing seems right and heartfelt and legitimate. Yet Christ cuts right to his heart. John MacArthur puts it this way. Jesus was not making a poverty requirement for salvation, but exposing the idols of this young man's heart. He was not blameless as he had maintained, since he loved his possessions more than his neighbors. 
More importantly, he refused to obey Christ's direct command, choosing to serve riches instead of God. Now in comparison, I want you to turn to Luke 19, verses 1 through 10. Again, another familiar passage to most of you, the story of Zacchaeus. And I want you, as we're reading this, to observe the difference between Zacchaeus, who also was wealthy, to the rich young ruler. We'll read Luke 19, and I'm going to begin in verse 1. And he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief collector. He was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was, and he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on before and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. But Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, of half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have extorted anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and save the lost. So we see Zacchaeus is the exact opposite of the rich young ruler. Zacchaeus actually humbled himself and acted upon his repentance, which we know is true repentance. This is the difference between the believer and the unbeliever. The believer is convicted by God's word and desires to change like Zacchaeus did, while the unbelievers like the rich young ruler, who in James 1, 23 through 24, like David just taught us, is like a man who looks at himself, his natural face in a mirror, for once he looked at himself and has gone away, he immediately forgot what kind of person he was. Now I'm going to turn to Mark 15, 15. I'm only reading one verse, so if you'd like to turn there, you're more than welcome to. This, in context, is Jesus before Pilate. Mark 15, 15. And wishing to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas for them. And after having Jesus scourged, he delivered him over to be crucified. It's a very short verse, but we notice the language that describes the unbeliever Pilate's heart. In the beginning of verse 15, it says, and wishing to satisfy the crowd. Pilate had made an idol, even as an unbeliever, which you can have idols, of pleasing people rather than acting upon the fact of Jesus, which he knew was an innocent man. Now we're going to be looking at Luke 10, 38 through 42. The context of this passage should also be very familiar with you. It's the sisters Mary and Martha. We'll start in verse 38 of Luke 10. Now as they were traveling along, he entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary, who was also seated at the Lord's feet, listening to his word. But Martha was distracted with all her preparations, and she came up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to do all the preparations alone? Then tell her to help me. But the Lord answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and bothered about so many things, but only one thing is necessary, for Mary has chosen the good part, which shall not be taken away from her. 
So do you notice again the comparison, not only with the rich young ruler in Zacchaeus, but Mary and Martha. One sister, Mary, was sitting at Jesus' feet, while the other sister, Martha, the Bible says, was distracted with all her preparations. Her preparations were distracting her from listening to the words of Jesus. Does that mean preparations in in, uh, in and of themselves are bad? No. (laughs) We're told throughout the scriptures to use diligence and wisdom. So where does Martha's idol lie? In her distraction. Remember, Brad Bigney says an idol is anyone or anything that captures our hearts and minds and affections more than God. In this case, her preparations were capturing and distracting her heart more than listening to God. It's easy to read passages like this and think, Martha, Jesus is right there in your own home, (laughs) and you are doing other things. But how often, and I know for myself, do I forsake or you forsake spending time in God's word for doing chores, listening to music, etc.? It's passages like these that should cause us to pray, like the psalmist in Psalm 139, 23 through 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way within me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Our second to last passage we're reading tonight is Romans 1, 21 through 25. I mentioned this earlier from Psalm 115. And we're only reading Romans 1, verses 21 and verse 25. Verse 21 says, For even though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their thoughts and their foolish hearts where it's darkened. In verse 25, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So John Piper says that, so Paul puts it like this in verses one or chapter one twenty-five. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature. Anything that is created rather than the creator. But it's peace to know that there's no wrath for the believer. And why is that? Because Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 1, you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Our last passage we'll be looking tonight at is James 4, 1 through 8, and then we'll be getting to the practicalities of idols in our heart. It's James chapter 4, verses 1 through 8. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust, and you do not have, so you murder. You are envious, and you cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives, so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Be subject, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. So a startling contrast is made in James 4, which should quickly humble our hearts when we think idolatry might not be as big of a deal. Gospel treason puts it this way. Harlotry, prostitution, and adultery is God's 
favorite word picture for how we chase things other than him. And he doesn't promise to help us while we're doing it. Instead, he comes against us in our idolatry. Psalm 73, 27 says, For behold, those who are far from you will perish. You have destroyed everyone who is unfaithful to you. Brad Bigney says, Notice how God describes the heart in James 4 as double-minded. There's more than one thing that we're thinking and wanting, and that's what causes so much confusion and conflict, because both with God and with other people in our lives. We're not focused solely on pleasing God and serving others. We are busy promoting our own agendas, and that makes us double-minded. When we have quarrels and conflicts, it's because of the source of our pleasures. If our only source of satisfaction was with God, we would never have trials or conflicts or quarrels. So our third point, which is more of the practicality side of things, is how can I identify idols in my own life? So point one was, what are idols? Point two was, where do we see idols in scripture? Point three, how can I identify idols in my own life? Bikni has a great way of posing the question, why do you sin the way you sin? Why do you get hung up where you get hung up? And why is it so hard for us to stop even when by God and his Holy Spirit convicts us? And how often and however much effort you put forth, why do you still find yourself going back to the same sin again and again? Remember, an idol is anything or anyone that begins to capture our hearts, minds, and affections more than God. It's living on a substitute. It's exchanging the glory of God, his majesty, his power, his goodness, his promises, all that he does in our lives for something else, for a boyfriend, a spouse, a job, athletic achievements, financial stability, health, or just even an idea. And idolatry shows up in a million different places in our lives. John Calvin says our heart is a factory of idols. So what does your life say and what do others see? If someone had you under surveillance, bugging your house, <laughs> listening to find out what makes you mad, what brings you to tears, what makes you laugh, tracking where you invest your money and your time, what would he conclude? Where would the trail lead? Would he find Jesus Christ at the end of that trail? Or would the trail lead to a desire for marriage, a mirror, people-pleasing, perfectionism, etc.? So how can we identify our own idols so that we can repent from them? First, read, prayer and reading the word of God. We are convicted by sin when God shows us our sin. Again, I'm mentioning Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, to pray, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts and see if there's be any hurtful way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. Again, this book poses the following statements that might help you in addition to reading the word of God in prayer to see if something is an idol in your heart. So ask yourself these questions if you answered the blank. You'll sacrifice for it. You'll spend time on it. You'll spend money on it. You'll talk about it. Luke 6.45 says, For his mouth speaks from the abundance of his heart. You'll protect it. You'll defend it. You'll serve it. You'll perfect it. You'll think about it. You'll worry about it. You'll build your schedule around it. You'll get angry when someone blocks you from it or messes with it. An outburst of anger or extreme emotion is always an opportunity. It's an alarm bell for you to take notice what's going on in your heart. Another question you could ask yourself is what would we have to talk about if we didn't have blank? So if that's a center of your conversations, it could possibly be an idol if that's all you want to talk about. What are a majority of our conversations centered around with our family, our friends, or people we don't even know? Are they centered around God's word and the gospel or other things we're passionate about? 
So now for the more practical side of things, take out the handout I gave you earlier. Very tiny font, <laughs> I apologize. So there's a lot of questions on here that you guys can take home. It's been really helpful for my own heart. So the first section is questions to ask. And then the second section is a personal checklist. So you can take notes now if you see something you're convicted about, or you can take notes privately. So we're just going to go through the bolded ones together. So the first bolded one for questions to ask yourself is, am I willing to sin to get this? And you might be thinking, I'm not willing to sin to get anything. I just love the Lord and, you know, I'm a grace. What can I do? <laughs> you can do the following things, and I can too. You can want more attention. You can want better grades, a relationship, a certain piece of clothing. Or are you willing to flatter someone in order for them to like you, referring to people-pleasing? So are you willing to sin to get those things? And the next bolded one is, do I turn to this as a refuge and comfort instead of going to God? Some examples are music, social media, friends, parents, food, working out. Again, it's not inherently sinful to go to your parents or friends for comfort. That's the body of Christ. That's what it's made for. But who are you going to first and for your ultimate comfort? Is it your parents, your friends, your siblings? Or are you going to God for ultimate comfort? The third one that we'll cover together is what would make you happy? You know, there's an endless supply of things. Some that I thought I've heard in small group or different things is being married. I know. <laughs> going to master's, new clothes, a phone, etc. Again, it is not sinful. I'm not saying it's sinful to want to get married. It's not sinful. It's not sinful to want to go to master's. That's a good thing. What happens is it becomes sinful when you're willing to disobey these things in God's word in order to and disobey God's word in order to get those things, and it takes place of God in your heart. Another good question to ask yourself is, when you're pressured or tense, where do you turn? I know for myself, I can often go to chores and just cleaning my room, which seems like a good thing, but it's not if I'm not going to the word of God first for comfort and conviction. Some other examples are music, television, shopping, food, etc. I'm just listing a few. The supply is endless. <laughs> um, the last question we'll ask together is what do you pray for and you might be thinking how is that an idol <laughs> um, some examples are what is the center of our prayer around is it around worshiping God and praising God for who he is and his character and wanting our will to be aligned with his or is it focused only on asking God for marriage asking God for good grades asking God for friends asking God for sports championships or whatever you might want to pray for Again, God wants us to come with all of our desires to him. That is not sinful. It's sinful when those things take place of us worshiping God and loving his word and loving those things more than that. So the personal checklist is a lot more practical, giving you some examples of idols of the heart. So the first one we'll give or go over together is performance of others. So you can make a list of what others should do. Example, for my brother to be a good sibling, he must blank. If they don't do this, you become judgmental and unloving. Another example of an idol could be success. So what's a good day to you? What makes it a good day in your mind? Usually it's along these lines. I got a lot accomplished. I got a lot done. Or I pleased people today. I got my way. Others did for me what I wanted them to do. Another one is fairness. Life has to be fair. Psalm 73 is a very encouraging scripture and um, makes you feel like you're not alone when you read it because the mentality of this prayer is that you're trying so hard as a believer to please God and love him and serve him, but yet you see people like in Hollywood doing nothing trying to please God, and they seem to be prospering and have everything going for them. 
And the last one we'll cover together is Christian marriage in a home. So these are not bad desires, but it's the idea of thinking. I cannot adequately serve and honor God until I have a godly husband and children. Or thinking that you want or I want to achieve a certain status as a married person rather than just a single person. I know it's easy as young women for the desires of a godly husband to quickly become an idol. Remember, idols in your life can be anything. It's not just a golden calf. It's not just people-pleasing. It's not just perfectionism. It can be anything, even a good thing, but when when you want it too much, it becomes an idol. So the Puritans called such things inordinate desires. So you can enjoy these things, but you're not to live for them. Lastly, now that we are kind of thinking through our minds, okay, these might be idols, our last point is what do I do with my idols? So we've covered point one of what are idols and idolatry. Point two, where do we see them in scripture? Point three, how do I identify my own idols? Because we all have different ones. And point four is how do we put these to death? In short words, we just put them to death. But practically, we have to put idols to death through spiritual disciplines, which ironically, the sermon this morning was about. So that's super helpful. So we can we need to read the word of God daily. We need to meditate on the word of God, memorize scripture, etc. One of the reasons God commands the believer to practice spiritual disciplines is that so we may be able through Christ alone to fight the idols in our very hearts. The author of Gospel Treason puts it this way, God's word will show you what's in your heart. Reading the Bible keeps you honest, but you don't just read the Bible. The Bible reads you. It exposes you and leads you to freedom. So regular daily scripture intake can keep you from getting bogged down in the sins that so easily entangle you. And then I'm going to give you some scriptures practically that are helpful to memorize in regards to idolatry and specific idols. I'm going to read the first few to you, and then I'll give you references for the rest to look up your, on your own if you'd like. So the first one is 1 Corinthians 10, 13 through 14. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 through 14 says, No temptation has overtaken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able. But with that temptation will provide a way of escape also, so that you will be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. Isaiah 42, 8 is another helpful one to meditate on and memorize. It says, I am Yahweh, that is my name. I will not give my glory to another, nor my praise to graven images. Another helpful one to memorize is Matthew 22, verses 37 through 38. Again, that's Matthew 22, verses 37 through 38. It says, And Jesus said to them, him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the greatest and foremost commandment. Another helpful one to memorize is Proverbs 4, 23. It says, Guard your heart with all diligence, for from it flows the springs of life. And then others that I'll just give you the reference for that are helpful to memorize and meditate are on our 1 John 5.21. We see the book of 1 John and we read that it's often focused on loving your brother and a lot of, about love. But John closes his book by saying, brothers, flee from idolatry. Proverbs 29.25 is very helpful if you think you have an idol of people pleasing. Jeremiah 17, 9-10 is reminding us of the wickedness of our hearts. And when we think, oh, I have no idols, I'm great. <laughs> that will quickly humble you because it reminds us we're in a sin-cursed world and our idols, our, our hearts are idol factories. 
Matthew 6.21 is also helpful. And this is in regards to being very careful with what our heart treasures. So anything other than God. And the last one, which I've mentioned twice already, is Psalm 139, verses 23 through 24. And it's a prayer to God to search for our sin. And if you're saved and you pray for God to expose your sin, (laughs) he will. (laughs) I promise. And all the Psalms are very encouraging as well to read through. And Brad Bigney summarized it this way in regards to memorizing scripture to fight idols. He says, it's not enough to memorize some verses about anger and self-control. You need to go after your heart. There are heart issues behind all that anger. When someone is at rage or at home in public or at home or in public, you can be sure that someone has threatened one of his or her idols and war is about to break out. So we can know all the verses about specific sins, but they do not help us unless we identify the sins in our own lives and desire to put them to death. And the book has another great reminder to guard ourselves from idols. Tell yourself when you think you're struggling with a specific idol, this is wrong and this is sin. I made a commitment to God. Christ bought me with his own precious blood. I have to love above my feelings and make choices that please God. Shut down those feelings. Choke off your wrong thinking by redirecting your thoughts to what the Bible says is true. You need to starve that idol before it grows into a monster that will take you deeper into sin than you ever thought you would go. Another encouragement I found is reading specifically the Gospels and Galatians. Because once we see the ugliness of idolatry in our own hearts, the more we can understand the sacrifice Christ gave to die for our sins. And he received the wrath of God on our behalf. Galatians is also really helpful to read in regards to idolatry, reminding us of the grace we have in Christ Jesus, our Lord, while spurning us on towards sanctification. C.J. Mahaney said, If there's anything in life that we should be passionate about, it's not idols, it's the gospel. I mean passionate about thinking upon it, dwelling on it, rejoicing it, allowing it to color the way we look at the world. One thing we can be, one, only one thing can be of first importance to each of us, and the only the gospel ought to be. Idolatry moves in when the gospel moves out, and I think that's key for tonight. Idolatries move in when the gospel moves out. So fighting idols is obviously a part of our sanctification. It's a lifelong fight that we will have until Christ returns or he calls us home. Does that mean we just get lazy about our idols? No. Rather, it should urge us the more, all the more constantly to cling to Christ and to desire to obey him in every area of our life. And one of my favorite hymns is, I ask the Lord that I might grow. It's in your booklet if you're not familiar with it. And I felt like the hymn fits so perfectly the topic of tonight and this weekend because desiring to put sin to death is a result of sanctification. So I'm just going to read the first and last line to you of that hymn because it is a little long. And it's written by John Newton. The first line is, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. And the last line speaks from the perspective of God. As we sing this morning, these inward trials I employ from self and pride to set you free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou may find your all in me. So this is a very wonderful hymn as well as other hymns to meditate on the truths of God's word for encouragement when sanctification seems like such a weighty task. These words remind us sanctification is to draw us closer to God and away from the things of this world. And I just want to cover before we close. Pastor David preached a sermon in December on James 1, 22 through 25, which I mentioned earlier about assurance of salvation. 
So the word of God convicts the believer and sanctifies them. However, the word of God toward the unbeliever is to convict them unto repentance for, from sin to, for salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. So for context, James 1, 23 through 24 says, For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks at his face in the mirror. For once he looked at himself and has gone away, he immediately forgot what kind of person he was. So I know I am praying and the other leaders here are praying that you don't leave here tonight or this weekend as you keep hearing, forgetting what you've heard. Pastor David said in that sermon in December, every single time you hear God's word preached, you're doing one of two things. You're either training yourself to obey God's word or you're creating a disobedient pattern that will result in a hardened heart towards God's word. So if you don't know Jesus Christ as your savior, you're unable to move any idols from your life. So this is not practical. Yet by the grace of God, he freely offers salvation to all those who put his tr- their trust in him, not in idols alone. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, a person believes leading to righteousness and with the mouth, he confesses leading to salvation. So I know we keep saying this over and over this weekend, but if you are not saved or you think you're, you're not sure of your salvation, you can talk to myself or the other leaders or David and we'd be happy to help you. So I know we've covered a lot. So I'm going to, we're going to have a Q&A with all the leaders, not just me. So I'm going to close this in prayer, and then we can just hang out. So I'm going to close this in prayer. Lord, thank you so much for the time with these girls. Thank you for your word that convicts and exhorts us to spurn ourselves on towards sanctification, to love you and serve you until you come or you call us home. I pray for those who are unsaved here that they would be convicted of the idolatry of unbelief. And I pray that they would just come to know you for those who are elect. And I thank you for our time together. And I pray that you'd bless the rest of this evening and continue to convict us of idols in our hearts and help us to remove them by your grace alone. We love you. Praise you. We thank you. Amen.